This is PRN, your as-needed dose of medical knowledge. I'm Alana Castro-Gilliard. And I'm Chandler Davis. This podcast provides general information and discussion about medicine, health, and related subjects. It is not intended and should not be construed as medical advice or the practice of medicine. Views expressed herein do not necessarily represent the views or opinions of Edward Via College of Osteopathic Medicine or any other institution or employer. Today we get the chance to speak with Dr. Jill Kramer on multiple sclerosis, invisible illness, and the challenges these patients face. Hi, my name is Jill Kramer. I'm an associate instructor in neurology at the Virginia College of Osteopathic Medicine. I am a general community neurologist with a special interest in multiple sclerosis and the treatment of patients with multiple sclerosis. I'm really excited to have this conversation today. I think multiple sclerosis is something that's really not talked about that much. So I was wondering if we could start off by you kind of telling us what your experience is with MS patients. How much do you see them? Is is there a general trend of the reason that they're coming in to see you? So, wow, that's a pretty broad question. I started seeing patients in my general neurology practice when I finished residency. And the people that really stood out to me were the people who had the chronic devastating diseases, the multiple sclerosis, the degenerative diseases like Parkinson's and Alzheimer's. And I think the reason that the multiple sclerosis patients really developed a special place in my heart is because they had a tendency to be women about my age, young, otherwise healthy people coming in with these strange neurological things that were going on, and then they had this potentially devastating disease. Parallel with getting to know the people affected by multiple sclerosis, I became more and more aware of the ongoing research in multiple sclerosis, and that has really been very exciting in the last 20 years. We have gone from having no treatments at all in the early 1990s to having 14 FDA-approved treatments as of today, March of 2019, and it's been very exciting learning about the disease and learning about the people and actually being able to bring people some hope and some treatment options that weren't even there at the beginning of my career. So, yeah, so the development of the treatments, the research, the knowledge about multiple sclerosis has grown in the time that I've been a neurologist, and I've really developed an attachment for people who are affected by multiple sclerosis because it can be such a devastating disease. Absolutely. Do you see a lot of patients in this area with multiple sclerosis? So I've actually developed a clinic for patients with multiple sclerosis, and I specifically let it be known in the community that I am interested in the treatment and evaluation of patients with multiple sclerosis. So that may include the young patient who has some early neurological changes or an abnormal MRI, is curious about, worried about, concerned that they might have multiple sclerosis, or it may be somebody with a well-established known diagnosis for the past 50 years. So I see a variety of patients at different stages in their journey with multiple sclerosis. I was just wondering if you see a general trend when you're working with MS patients, is there something that stands out to you that's really important that you think a physician should do or should know about the patient whenever we're working with them, maybe not from a neurology perspective, as if we were a family care doc or if we were their gynecologist. I think it's important always to, as much as you can, put yourself in the patient's shoes. Picture what their life is like. Picture what their day is like. Picture what their hopes, their dreams, their worries, their concerns are. So if you take a young, 
healthy, typically female, although this is not the only person who develops multiple sclerosis, she may have a job, a new career. She may be finishing school. He or she may have young children. These are folks with dreams and aspirations of their own that could be potentially really devastated by a neurological disease. It's known that multiple sclerosis can be stepwise and over a lifetime extremely devastating to the nervous system. So I think having some compassion for where they are and what their concerns are, I think understanding that this is a disease that we can prevent a good amount of the progression. And what I often tell my patients is go live your life and I'll help take away some of the worry of the multiple sclerosis by knowing what the disease is, knowing what's happening. I can't predict the future. Nobody can. And I know that's scary. But at the same time, we can really try to protect your future the best way that we can. It's like putting on a seatbelt when you get in your car, not because you think you're going to have a car accident, but because you could and you want to be protected. That's what we use the medications that help to Mm -hmm. prevent disability and multiple sclerosis, new lesions, and new neurological attacks. That's what we're using those medications for. It's future neurological insurance in a way. I really like that comparison of the seatbelt to the preventative measure, so it makes sense. So you were talking before about the treatments. The treatments that have been developing since you started your career, are these mostly, we've talked in class about relapsing or remitting being the most common form of MS. Are these treatments to delay further progression, or are there any treatments that are working towards completely eradicating MS? So it turns out to be more complicated than you would think to completely eradicate MS. Basically, the immune system has gone astray, and it's it's become a a complete anomalous system. And so it's not just, oh, fix this one problem, and then Mm -hmm. your multiple sclerosis is going to go away. You pointed out that relapsing remitting is the most common form of multiple sclerosis, and that is true. Most of the treatments are to prevent relapses, to prevent new symptoms, to prevent new lesions, which are all relapsing, remitting features. Mm -hmm. We don't know how to go back and fix the nervous system once it has been damaged. So when you use a phrase like completely eradicate the disease, Mm -hmm. you know, somebody who has MS or somebody who treats MS wants this person to be back totally on track and walking and talking and controlling their bladder and functioning completely as though they never had multiple sclerosis. And unfortunately, even though we have all of this research and all of these treatments to protect the future, we don't know how to correct the immune system permanently. And we also don't know how to reverse the damage that's already been done. So we're only partway there. Um, We've been learning a lot in our narrow block about things like Alzheimer's, where the processes might be happening much earlier on and that the symptoms are later coming. Is that the same thing with MS, or is it more at once you start getting the immune system attacking? Is this something that if you have MS, you are always going to get it? We don't know. We don't know how certain it is. It is an inflammatory autoimmune disease. It is not like Alzheimer's, which is a neurodegenerative disease. Mm -hmm. So... Is multiple sclerosis the end of a cascade chain of events that results in the immune system causing damage? We actually don't know. 
we we don't know where it begins or why it begins, and we think that there may actually be different factors for different patients. So one patient, it may be a vitamin D deficiency plus a genetic predisposition. Another person, it may be a series of infections that kick off the immune system to instead attack the nervous system. We really don't know. We do know that attacking early and giving people treatments early makes a huge difference ultimately in the course of the disease, and that's really where we are right now until we learn more. Yeah, but this is just a side note, but it's just so interesting to me as an early medical student. I feel like I entered medical school thinking everything was so black and white, like it was just that we know all the science, but I'm finding out more and more that there's just so much that we don't know, and sharing that with patients, I feel like, can be very difficult because they also expect us to know. Yeah, and sometimes that's how you phrase it, right? So when patients come in to be evaluated for multiple sclerosis, what's going to happen next? Am I going to be disabled? Can I walk? And I will sometimes try as gently as I can to explain that, you know, we're really still not very good at predicting the future. But what we are really good at is taking your disease and applying the best treatments that we have available now to try to protect your future. And that's that's what I can promise. And that's mm-hmm. what you can expect as a patient. And I think a lot of people, even though they're still afraid, they still don't know what the future is going to hold, they kind of understand that we're all doing the best that we can and them included. And sometimes people just feel when they're told you're doing the best that you can by doing these steps, they feel that they're in control and that they can actually affect their outcome. And that can be really encouraging to people Remember 20 years ago, we would say, gosh, you have multiple sclerosis. I'm really sorry about that. I hope it goes well for you. Very different to be able to say, hey, you have multiple sclerosis. Let's tackle this together. I I really do like that, the idea of a partnership within medicine. I think in our, at least in my medical education, I think that that's really what they're pushing for. So kind of to switch gears a little bit, I know we've talked personally about the idea of these invisible illnesses and disabilities. And for anyone that doesn't know, and maybe you can expand more on this, invisible illnesses are generally chronic illnesses and conditions that would impair normal activities of daily life. The idea of working a nine-to-five might not be something that somebody with an invisible illness, something that we can't see from the outside. It might not be something that they could do. And I was just wondering if you could speak kind of to this relationship with MS. Two of the most disabling symptoms in multiple sclerosis cannot be seen from the outside, and that's fatigue and also cognitive dysfunction. So when people become disabled from working by their multiple sclerosis, those are the two most common symptoms that cause disability. Usually you can't see that. These are people that are running in and out of the grocery store. They're picking their kids up from school. They've been working really hard. They've been trying to fight this disease. And it's not necessarily noticeable that at the end of the day, they go home and then they go to sleep or they don't finish their projects they need to do at home or they're secretly giving other people some of their work to help them be caught up. So these are really invisible symptoms. I will not infrequently for a patient who is otherwise functional but has a lot of fatigue, I actually offer the option of a handicapped parking tag, for example. This is a, <laughs> this is a, an area that's of sort of 
personal irritation for me is when patients come back and say, you know, I used my parking tag and somebody said something nasty to me because I didn't have a walker. I can't see why your doctor did this. Therefore, I have a right as though they're the (laughs) handicapped parking tag police. This drives me crazy because I have patients who can walk into a store, but Mm -hmm. by the time they're done, they are so fatigued that their leg drags or they're at increased risk of falling or now they're not going to be able to go home and help their toddler get ready for bed. So I think it's important to back off about the handicap parking (laughs) tag, but really give other people a break. We truly don't know what other people are going through. We really don't. And I just, I really feel defensive on behalf of my patients and I want them to be able to finish their day. Other Mm -hmm. things that I have done for my patients because of their invisible illness is I've brought in family members and explained to them how the disease works. Sometimes people say, you know, my husband just thinks I'm lazy and I don't want to finish the dishes at night. Can you explain, you know, what a day is like from a medical point of view? And sometimes that helps and sometimes that's rejected too. (laughs) There's just a lot to MS that a person can't see. It varies from day to day. So a person Mm -hmm. with multiple sclerosis might be fine on Monday and be able to do what they need to do. But Tuesday, um, their leg isn't working properly, or they can't think, or they can't process information. There's a high variability in multiple sclerosis hour to hour. They might be fine in the morning and exhausted in the afternoon, for example. Or they might be fine on Tuesday and then suffer an exacerbation in their sleep Tuesday night, and they can't see out of one eye or use their hand. I mean, the unpredictability is really scary. And these aren't people that are paranoid that something might happen. This has actually happened to them before. They know what the possibilities are. So it's very scary. Yeah, I had a patient. Her theory was the dollar theory. She gets a certain amount of money. You know, let's say she gets a dollar's worth of energy at the beginning of the day and something unexpected happens that stresses her. Well, now there's 75 Mm -hmm. cents gone. So she's got 25 cents left, but the problem is she doesn't know she has 25 cents left. And so she goes to work and that 25 cents is gone at noon. And so she tries to borrow from tomorrow. And Mm -hmm. MS patients are unique in the sense that if they borrow their energy from the next day, they will pay for it the next day. Those of us without MS don't get that because if we borrow ahead, think about in medical school, you're all the time (laughs) borrowing Mm -hmm. ahead your energy. People with MS can't do that because they can't just take a weekend off or go on a short vacation or get a good night's sleep and feel better. That's not how it works. They lose that forever. I remember you speaking about that in class, that really I may have a very difficult week, but I can sleep that off. I can go to bed, maybe add an extra hour to my sleep, and I'll feel fine the next day. Um, But that's not the case with MS patients or a lot of people that have various types of invisible illnesses. Exactly. So you kind of spoke to this a bit at the beginning because you talked about how you may have patients at the very beginning or that have had MS for 50 years. Can you speak a little bit to the range of ability, especially when it comes to work or home life, for patients with MS? It ranges all over the place. I have people that even come in and ask me, are you sure I have MS? Because I feel pretty good. (laughs) And I have some patients in wheelchairs with 24-hour attendant care. I have some patients that are bed-bound, and I need to go visit them in the nursing home. I have patients who are in wheelchairs who have the minimal use of one hand and a little bit of use in the other hand who work full and part-time. So there is a 
high variability in abilities and functional status. So my mm-hmm. patients who are in wheelchairs that who aren't able to walk but are able to use their hands a little bit, the reason they're able to function is they're not as affected, ironically, by the fatigue. Their symptoms are much more physical. And yeah. so you can see where I have other patients that could walk, talk. They look fine. If you went and saw them at the grocery store, you'd think, what is the problem that are so mm-hmm. exhausted mm-hmm. by 10 o'clock in the morning that they can't do anything and they can't think straight? I'm particularly interested in how we can help our patients become active members of society when they want to be. And so I was wondering if there's anything about our built environment, the way that we structure our workforce, whether that be access to health care or this idea of you have to work nine to five for a job. Is there anything that could be altered to better suit people with invisible illnesses like MS? Well, I think the question you're Asking implies that there may be a one-size-fits-all solution, and I think that does not exist. And the reason it doesn't exist is for exactly the reasons that I just outlined. You have some patients that can't walk, but they can still work full-time. So they would just need an access ramp and an elevator to get to their floor and then a desk that they could sit their chair into. I have Mm -hmm. other patients who their energy is unpredictable, and so a nine-to-five job is a no-go. It's not a physical issue that's keeping them from working. It's more of a fatigue issue. And so they need a low-stress job where productivity isn't an issue and hours aren't an issue. Last time I checked, we're in a capitalist society where we all get graded on our ability to produce. That may be an inherent issue with society, but that person may take on an at-home sales position or I have one patient who is an artist. And so when this patient is feeling well, creates art and then has other, that has other ways of displaying the art. So art shows and going out and setting up would be completely exhausting and unpredictable, but Mm -hmm. putting it on the internet has really opened up some possibilities for people. I, I think no matter what you do, There will be people who will not be able to function within that construct. And when you change the way that society works, you may actually change other people's accessibility to that system as well. So changing the game, (laughs) changing the rules of the game inherently changes the rules for everybody. It would be nice to come up with a solution that would be more flexible and permissible for people who have more disabilities. And I've seen in the last 20 years some huge leaps and bounds in that direction between the Americans with Disabilities Act, the accessibility of the Internet, at-home job, as-needed jobs, and that sort of a thing. I agree we've got a long way to go, but it would be nice to find solutions that would take the productivity, the abilities that patients with multiple sclerosis had and be able Mm -hmm. to turn those into something that other people need, value, want, and are willing and able to then use so that there is that flow of ideas, there's that flow of energy, there's that flow of money, and put it all together. I think that's going to be more of a community-based effort than it's Mm -hmm. going to be something that comes from above because anything that comes, you know, from the national level or even the state level is almost inherently going to be too nonspecific and won't meet the individual needs would be my concern. I think that that's a general trend of what you've been saying. And, you know, we have to look at our patients as individuals and, and helping them manage their life from where they're at is really important. 
It's so interesting to me that you were saying about, like, the American Disabilities Act, the ADA, because I've only ever been alive since it it was in the early 1990s that it became a thing. And the Internet is something that, I mean, I still remember dial-up, but I was at the end of that. So this is just, like, very interesting to me to think how far we probably have come, not to say that we don't have a lot to go for helping our patients with these sort of illnesses or disabilities. Yeah, and so in my lifetime, we still were doing party lines and landlines, and there weren't (laughs) any cell phones when I was growing up, and the Internet became a thing when I was transitioning into college. So the collective memory of how far we've come is actually pretty impressive in uh, just among the people that are living today. And, you know, the fact that we even have electric wheelchairs is a really cool, awesome thing. People can actually Mm -hmm. leave their house. People aren't dying early deaths from multiple sclerosis at the rate that they used to. So it's come a long way, but nobody's ever satisfied with where we are. And I think that's a good thing. We should always be striving for more and better and improvement. Is there any last piece of advice that you want to give to us on our, you know, our journey throughout the rest of our medical path? I think one of the most important things is whenever you meet a patient, meet the patient. We are trained in diseases. We are trained in how to diagnose a disease. There's a saying amongst people who treat multiple sclerosis that if you've treated a patient with multiple sclerosis, you've treated one patient with multiple sclerosis. (laughs) And I, I think that that's true of your diabetic patient. It's true of your orthopedic patient. It's true of your emergency room patient. We are trained, and as human thinkers, we chunk people into groups. It's how you learn. If if I told you that you couldn't possibly learn anything about a disease and you just had to figure out each patient individually, that's an overwhelming task. It would be akin to telling you you need to learn all of the English language, but there are no rules and every word is unique, so you have to memorize each individual word. So it's how our brains think, it's it's how we learn, it's how we assimilate information, and we should take advantage of that. But being aware of that, we also need to understand that people are still individuals. No, I don't take a completely different workup approach to every single multiple sclerosis patient. This has been worked out. There's a very careful paradigm for how you work out whether or not somebody has multiple sclerosis. I don't need to reinvent that paradigm every time I meet a patient. But taking that well-worked-out paradigm and applying it uniquely to each individual's case is really important. For example, I may have a patient who is tremendously claustrophobic, which makes MRIs challenging. MRIs are one of the ways that we really rely on to diagnose and then manage and assess the treatment of a patient. So what do I do with the really claustrophobic patient? Well, sometimes we talk about what we're going to miss out of not having the MRI, and we have to decide if that's worth missing that information in exchange for the patient having to go through the MRI. Mm -hmm. Like I tell my patients, listen, I'm not the one that has to pay for the MRI, and I'm not the one that has to go into the MRI. I am listening to your perspective because I know that you and I have different perspectives, and that's a good thing because I bring the science, you bring the philosophy, and we put it together Again, that partnership we were talking about before. So it's important to not just walk into the scared, claustrophobic patient's room and say, oh, well, we need an MRI. Here's your order. Go get your MRI done. (laughs) There's a discussion, right? (laughs) Absolutely. Absolutely. I love the idea of the partnership instead of paternalism within medicine. 
Yeah, fortunately, that has really dissolved, so hopefully that's on its way to being a thing of the past, a relic we don't need to (laughs) mess with anymore. (laughs) Well, I've really enjoyed this conversation. Thank you so much for taking the time out of your day. Thank you. For more PRN, please be on the lookout. If you like this episode, tell someone about it and start up a conversation. I'm Alana Castro-Gilliard. I'm Chandler Davis. And this is PRN. PRN.